Hello, everyone. It is me, Swix, and I'm here with Joseph Nelson. Hey, welcome hey. to the studio. It's Thanks nice, so much right? for having me. <laughs> we uh, have a professional setup in here. Joseph, you and I have known each other online for a little bit. I first heard about you on the SourceGraph podcast with Biang, and I highly, highly recommend that. There's a really good game theory story that is the best YC application story I've ever heard, and I won't tease further because they should go listen to that. What do you think? <laughs> It's a good story. It's a good story. It's a good story. So you got your Bachelor of Economics from George Washington. By the way, fun fact, I'm also an econ major as well. You are very politically active. I guess you, you did a lot of um, interning in political offices and you were responding to um, the, 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 the sheer amount of load that the Congress people have in terms of the, the support. So you built Represently, which is Zendesk for Congress. And uh, I liked in your SourceGraph podcast how you talked about how being more responsive to, to constituents is always a good thing, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. You also had a sideline as a data science instructor at General Assembly, as a consultant in your own consultancy. And you also did a bunch of hackathon stuff with Magic Sudoku, which is your transition from NLP into computer vision. And apparently at TechCrunch Disrupt, Disrupt in 2019, you tried to add chess. And that was your whole villain origin story for, hey, computer vision is too hard. Let's build a platform to do that. Uh, and now you're co-founder and CEO of RoboFlow. So that's your bio. Um, what's not in there that people should know about you? One key thing that people realize within maybe five minutes of meeting me, uh, I'm from Iowa. And yes. it's like a funnily novel thing. I mean, you know, growing up in Iowa, it's like everyone you know is from Iowa. But then when I left <laughs> to go to school, there was not that many Iowans at GW. And people were like, oh, like you're, you're Iowa Joe. Like, you know, how'd you find out about this school out here? It's like, oh, well, the Pony Express was running that day. So I was able to <laughs> send it. So I really like to lean into it. And so you kind of become a default ambassador for places that people don't meet a lot of other people from. So I've kind of taken that upon myself to just make it be a, a part of my identity. So, you know, my handle everywhere, Joseph of Iowa, like I, I, you can probably find my social security number just from knowing that that's my handle because I put it plastered everywhere. So that's, that's probably like one thing. What's your best pitch for Iowa? Like, why is Iowa awesome? The people. I was filled with people that genuinely care. You know, if you're waiting a long line, someone's going to strike up a conversation and kind of ask how you were doing. And it's just a, like a really genuine place. It was a wonderful place to grow up too. At the time, you know, I thought it was like, uh, you know, I was kind of embarrassed and then be from there. And then I actually kind of looking back, it's like, wow, you know, there's good schools, smart people, friendly. The uh, high school that I went to actually, Ben Silberman, the CEO and, or I guess former CEO and co-founder of Pinterest. And I have the same teachers in high school at different times. The co-founder, or excuse me, the creator of CRISPR, the gene editing technique, Dr. Feng. Dodna. Oh, so that's the patent debate. There's Dodna oh. and then there's Feng Zhang. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Feng Zhang, who I think ultimately won the patent war, uh, but is also from the same high school. Well, she won the patent, but Jennifer won the prize. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably, <laughs> I think that's probably, I, th I mean, I looked into it a little closely. I think it was something like she won the patent for CRISPR first existing and then Feng Zhang got it for uh, first use on humans, which I guess for commercial reasons is the perhaps more, more interesting one. But I don't know, bio life sciences is not my area of expertise. Yep. Knowing people that came from Iowa that do cool things certainly is. Yes. So <laughs> I'll claim it. Um, but yeah, I, I, we, um, at RoboFlow, actually, we're, we're bringing the full team to Iowa for the very first time this last week of, of April. And we'll have folks from like Scotland all over. That's your company retreat, go to Iowa? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. We're, well, so we do two a year. You know, we've done Miami. We've done, you know, some of the smaller teams have done like Nashville or Austin or these sorts of places. But we said, you know, let's bring it back to 
kind of the origin and the roots, uh, and we'll we'll bring the full team to to Des Moines, Iowa. So yeah, like I was mentioning, folks from California to Scotland and many places in between are all going to descend upon Des Moines for a week of uh, learning and working. So maybe you can check in with those folks. If what do they what do they decide <laughs> and determine about what's cool about our state? Well, one thing: Are you actually headquartered in Des Moines? On paper, yes. Isn't yeah. that amazing? That's like everyone's <laughs> Delaware, and you're like so. I well, was so doing we're, research. We're, we're incorporated in Delaware. Okay, we're, okay. we're Delaware C, like uh, most companies. But our headquarters, yeah, is in Des Moines. And part of that's a few things. One, it's like you know, there's this nice Iowa pride. And second is uh, Brad and I both grew up in Brad, my co-founder, and I grew up in in Des Moines, and we met each other in the year 2000. We looked it up for the the YC app. So you know, I think I guess more of my life I've known Brad than not, uh, which is kind of wow. crazy. And during YC, we did it during. 2020. So it was like the height of COVID. And so we actually got a house in Des Moines and lived, worked out of there. I mean, more credit to, so I moved back. I was living in DC at the time. I moved back to, to Des Moines. Brad was living in Des Moines, but he moved out of a house with his wife to move into what we called our hacker house. And then we had one uh, member of the team as well, Jacob Solowitz, who moved from Minneapolis down to Des Moines for the summer. And frankly, uh, COVID was a great time to, to build a YC company because there wasn't much else to do. I mean, it's kind of like wash your groceries and code. It's sort of the, that was the routine. <laughs> and you can use uh, computer vision to help with your groceries as well. That's exactly right. Tell me what to make. What's in my fridge? What should I cook? Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll cover that for the, with the GPT-4 uh, stuff. Exactly. Okay. So you have been featured with, in a lot of press events, uh, but maybe we'll just cover the origin story a little bit in a little bit more detail. So We'll, we'll cover RoboFlow and then we'll cover, we're going to segment anything. But uh, I think it's important for people to understand RoboFlow just because it gives people context for what you're about to show us at the end of the podcast. So Magic Sudoku, TC, uh, TechCrunch Disrupt, and then you go, you join Pioneer, which is Dan Gross's um, YC before YC. Yeah. Like, that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's a good, way to, that's a good description of it. Yeah, so I mean, like, RoboFlow kind of starts, as you mentioned, with this Magic Sudoku thing. So you mentioned when my prior business was a company called Represently. And you nailed it. I mean, U.S. Congress gets 80 million messages a year. We built tools that auto-sorted them. They didn't use any intelligent auto-sorting. And this is somewhat a, a quote-unquote solved problem in natural language processing of doing topic modeling or grouping together a similar sentiment and things like this. And as you mentioned, I'd like, I worked in D.C. for a bit and been exposed to some of these problems. And when I was like, oh, you know, with programming, you can build solutions. And I think the U.S. Congress is, you know, the U.S. kind of, United States is... Uh, support center, if you will. And <laughs> the United States' support center runs on pretty old software. So mm-hmm. we um, we built a product for that. It was actually at the time when I was working on Represently that Brad, his prior business um, is a social games company called Hatchlings. Uh, he phoned me in, in 2017. Apple had released Augmented Reality Kit, AR Kit. And Brad and I are both kind of serial hackers, like like to go to hackathons, don't really understand new technology until you build something with them type folks. And when AR Kit came out, Brad decided he wanted to build a game with it that would solve Sudoku puzzles. And the idea of the game would be, you take your phone, you hover, hold it over top of a Sudoku puzzle, it recognizes the state of the board, where it is, and then it fills it all in just right before your eyes. And he phoned me and I was like, Brad, this sounds awesome. And it sounds like you kind of got it figured out. What, what's, uh, what, what do you think I can do here? He's like, well, the machine learning piece of this is the part that I'm most uncertain about, uh, doing the digit recognition and um, filling in some of those results. I was like, well, I, I mean... Digit recognition is like the hella world of, of <laughs> computer vision. That's, that's like, yeah, yeah, MNIST, right? So I was like, that, that part should be the, the easy part. I was like, ah, I'm, he's like, I'm not so, super sure, but you know, the other parts, the mobile, AR, game mechanics, I've got pretty well figured out. It's like, I, I think you're wrong. I think you're thinking about the hard part is the easy mm. part. And he's like, no, you're wrong. The hard part is the easy part. And so long story short, we built this thing and released Magic Sudoku. 
And it kind of caught the internet's attention of what you could do with augmented reality and, and with computer vision. It's, you know, made it to the front of Imgur and some subreddits. It run Product Hunt Air app of the year. And it was really a, a flash in the pan type app, right? Like we were yep. both running separate companies at the time and mostly wanted to toy around with, with new technology. And um, kind of a fun fact about Magic Sudoku winning Product Hunt Air app of the year. That was the same year that I think the Model 3 came out. And so Elon Musk won a Golden Kitty. So we joked that we share an award with, with Elon Musk. <laughs> and the thinking there was that this is going to set off a, a revolution of if two random engineers can put together something that makes something makes a game programmable and, and interactive, then surely lots of other engineers will do similar of adding programmable layers on top of real world objects around us. Earlier, we were joking about objects in your fridge, you know, and automatically generating recipes and these sorts of things. And like I said, that was 2017. Rebel was actually co or I guess like incorporated in, in 2019. So we put this out there, nothing really happened. We went back to our day jobs of, of running our respective businesses. I sold Represently and then, as you mentioned, kind of did like consulting stuff to figure out the next sort of thing to, to work on and get exposed to various problems. Brad had appointed a new CEO at his prior business. And we got together that summer of 2019. We said, hey, you know, maybe we should return to that idea that caught a lot of people's attention and shows what's possible. And, you know, what, what, what kind of gives? Like the future is here and we have no one's done anything. Yeah, since. No, no one's done anything. So why is why are there not these these apps proliferated everywhere? Yeah. And so we said, you know, what we'll do is um, to add this software layer to the real world, we'll build um, kind of like a super app where if you point it at anything, it will recognize it and you can interact with it. We'll release a developer platform and allow people to make their own interfaces and interactivity for whatever object they're looking at. And we decided to start with board games because one, we had a little bit of history there with, with Sudoku. Two, there's social by default. So if one person you know finds it, then they'd probably share it among their friend group. Three, there's actually relatively few barriers to entry aside from like, you know, using someone else's brand name in your, your marketing mm-hmm. materials. Yeah. But other than that, there's no real uh, inhibitors to getting things going. And, and four, it's, it's just fun. It would be something that'd be, bring us enjoyment to work on. So we spent that summer making uh, Boggle the four by four word game programmable where, you know, unlike Magic Sudoku, which to be clear, totally ruins the game. Uh, you, you have a solve Sudoku puzzle. You don't need to do anything else. But with Boggle, if you and I are playing, we might not find all of the words that adjacent letter tiles unveil. So if we have a, an AI tell us, hey, here's like the best combination of letters that make high scoring words. And so we, we made Boggle and released it. And that, and that did okay. I mean, maybe the most interesting story was there's an English as a second language program in, in Canada that picked it up and used it as a part of their curriculum to like build vocabulary, which I thought was kind of an inspiring example and what happens just when you put things on the internet. And then um, we wanted to build one for chess. So this is where you mentioned we went to 2019 TechCrunch Disrupt. TechCrunch Disrupt holds a hackathon. And this is actually, you know, when Brad and I say we really became co-founders because we fly out to San Francisco, we rent a hotel room in the Tenderloin, we uh, we we uh, have one room. There's like one, there's room for one bed. And then we're like, oh, you said there was a cot, you know, on the on the listing. So they like give us a little a little cot. The end of the cot like bled and over to like the bathroom. So like there I am sleeping on the cot with like my head in the bathroom and the tenderloin. And, you know, fortunately we were at a hackathon. Very so glamorous. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of sleep to be had. There was you know we're we're just like making and, and shipping these How these sorts of apps. How many people with this? Ha- so I've never been to one of these things, but they're huge, right? Yeah, the disrupt hackathon. Um, I don't know numbers, but a few hundreds. You know, classically had been a place where it launched a lot of famous yeah. sort of... Yeah. And I think it's, you know, kind of slowed down as a place for true company generation, but 
for us, Brad and I, who likes just doing hackathons, being making things in compressed time skills, it seemed like a, a fun thing to do. And like I said, we'd been working on things, but it was only there that like <laughs> you're, you're you're stuck in a maybe not so great glamorous situation together, and you're just there to make a a program, and you want to make it be the best and compete against others. And so we add support to the app that we were called was called Board Boss. We couldn't call it anything with Boggle because of IP rights, recall. <laughs> so we called it Board Boss, and it supported Boggle. And then we were going to support Chess, which mm-hmm. you know has no IP rights around it. Uh, it's an open game, and. We did. So in 48 hours, we built an app uh, or added fit capability to point your phone at a chessboard. It understands the state of the chessboard and converts it to um, a known notation. Then it passes that to Stockfish, the open source chess engine for making move recommendations. And it makes move recommendations to, to players. So you could either play against like an omniscient AI or improve your own game. We learned that one of the key ways users like to use this was just to record their games because it's almost like reviewing game film yeah. of what you should have done game differently. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I guess the highlight of, uh, of Chess Boss was, you know, we get the first round of judging, we get to the second round of judging. And during the second round of judging, that's when like TechCrunch kind of brings around like some like celebs and stuff that like, that, like come mm. by. Evan Spiegel drops by. Ooh. Oh. And he, uh, he comes up to our, our, our booth and um, he's like, oh, so what, is, what does this all do? And, you know, he takes an interest in it because the underpinnings of, of AR interacting with the world. And uh, he's kind of like, you know, I could use this to like cheat on chess with my friends. And we're like, well, <laughs> you know, that wasn't exactly the, the thesis of why we made it, but glad that uh, at least you think it's kind of neat. Um, Wait, but he already started Snapchat by then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is 2019, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was kind of just checking out things that were new and, and judging. Didn't end up winning any um, awards within Disrupt, but I think what we won was actually maybe more important, maybe like the, the quote unquote, like the co-founders, co-founders. along the way. Yeah. <laughs> the friends we made along the way. Yeah, there yeah, we go. Yeah. To, to play into the meme. I would have preferred to win, to be clear. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you play to win. So you, you did win uh, $15,000 from some Des Moines uh, com- contest. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, that was nice. Yeah. Slightly after that, we did, we did win um, some, some grants and some other things for some of the work that we've John been doing. Papa John. Supporting the uh, the it, local tech scene. Yeah. Well, so there's not the one you're thinking of. Okay. Uh, there's a guy whose name is Papa John. Like that's his <laughs> that's his that's his last name. His first name is John. So it's not the Papa Johns you're thinking no, of that has no. some problematic yeah. undertones. It's like this guy who's totally different. I feel bad for him. His press must just be oh, like oh. Uh, all over the place. But yeah, he's this figure in the Iowa entrepreneurial scene who um, he actually was like doing SPACs before they were cool and these sorts of things. But yeah, he funds like grants that encourage entrepreneurship in the state. And since we've done YC and in the state, we were eligible for some of the awards that they were providing. But yeah, it was Disrupt that we realized, you know, um, the tools that we made, you know, it took us better part of a summer to add Boggle support and it took us 48 hours to add chess support. So adding the ability for programmable interfaces for any object, we'd built a lot of those internal tools. And our apps were kind of doing like the very famous shark fin where like it picks up really fast and it kind of like slowly peters off. And so mm. we're like, okay, if we're getting these like shark fin graphs, we got to try something different. And the, something different, I remember like the week before Thanksgiving 2019, sitting down and we wrote this readme for, actually it's still the readme at the base repo of RoboFlow today. It's been relatively unedited. Of the manifesto of like, we're going to build tools that enable people to make the world programmable. And there's like six phases and you know, there's still uh, many, many, many phases to go into what we wrote even at that time to, to present. But it's largely been um, right in line with what we thought we would we would do, which is give engineers the tools to add software to real-world optics, which is largely predicated on computer vision. So finding the right images, getting the right sorts of video frames, maybe annotating them, uh, finding the right sort of models to use to do this, monitoring the performance, all these sorts of things. 
And that from, I mean, we released that in early 2020 and it's kind of, that's what's really started to click. Awesome. I think we should just kind of go right into where you are today and like the, the products that you offer just, just to give people an overview and then we can go into the, the SAM stuff. So what is the clear, concise elevator pitch? I think you mentioned a bunch of things like make the world programmable. So you don't ha- like computer vision is a means to an end. Like there's, there's something beyond that. Yeah. I mean, the, the big picture mission for the business and the company and what we're working on is, is making the world programmable, making it read and write and interactive, kind of more entertaining, more efficient, more fun. And computer vision is the technology by which we can achieve that pretty quickly. So like the one-liner for the, the product and, and the company is providing engineers with the tools for data and models to build programmable interfaces. Um, and that can be workflows. It could be the uh, data processing. It could be the actual model training. But yeah, Roboflow helps you use production-ready computer vision workflows fast. And I like that in part of your other pitch that I've heard uh, is that you basically scale from the very smallest scales to the very largest scales, right? Like the sort of microbiology use case all the way to astronomy. Yeah, yeah. The the joke that I like to make is like anything um, underneath a microscope and, and through a telescope and everything <laughs> in between needs to, needs to be seen. I mean, we have people that run models in outer space, uh, underwater, remote places, under supervision and in, in known places. The crazy thing is that like all parts of of not just the world, but the universe need to be observed and understood and acted upon. So vision is going to be, I don't know, I feel like we're in the very, very, very beginnings of all the ways we're going to see it. Awesome. Let's go into a, lo- a few like top use cases because I think that really helps to like highlight the big names that you've, big logos that you've already got. I've got Walmart and Cardinal Health, but I don't, I don't know if you want to pull out any other names. Like, just to illustrate, because the reason, by the way, the reason I think that a lot of developers don't get into computer vision is because they think they don't need it. Um, or they think like, oh, like when I do robotics, I'll do it. But I think if, if you see like the breadth of use cases, then you get a little bit more inspiration as to like, oh, I can use CV to solve that. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, by giving, by making it be so straightforward to use vision, it becomes almost like a given that it's a set of features that you could power on top of it. And like you mentioned, there's, yeah, there's Fortune, one, there over half the Fortune 100 have used the the tools that Roboflow provides just as much as 250,000 developers. And so for a quarter million engineers finding and developing and creating various apps. And I mean, those apps are, are, are far and wide, just as you mentioned. I mean, everything from, say, like one that I like to talk about was like sushi detection of like finding the like right sorts of fish and ingredients that are in a given piece of, of sushi that you're looking at to say like roof estimation of like finding if there's like uh, hail damage on, on a given roof. Of course, self-driving cars and understanding the scenes around us is sort of the you know very early computer vision everywhere use case. Hard hat detection, like finding out if like a given workplace is is, yes. is safe. Uh, does someone have the right PPP on or PPE on? Are there the right distance from various machines? Uh, a huge place that vision has been used is environmental monitoring. Uh, what's the count of species? Can we verify that the environment's not changing in unexpected ways or like riverbanks are become, uh, becoming recessed in ways that we anticipate from satellite imagery? Plant phenotyping. I mean, people have used these apps for like understanding their plants and identifying them. And that data set is actually largely open, which is what's given a proliferation to the iNaturalist is, is that whole uh, hub of, of products. Lots of... Um, People that do manufacturing, so like Rivian, for example, is a Roboflow customer, and you know they're trying to scale from 1,000 cars to 25,000 cars to 100,000 cars in very short order, and that relies on having the ability to visually ensure 
that every part that they're making is produced correctly and right in time. Medical use cases, you know, there's actually this morning I was emailing with a user who's accelerating early cancer detection through breaking apart various parts of cells and doing counts of those cells and actually a lot of wet lab work that folks that are doing their PhDs or have done their PhDs are deeply familiar with that is often required to do very manually of, of counting the uh, microplasms or, or things like this. There's all sorts of um, like traffic counting and smart cities use cases of understanding curb utilization to what sort of vehicles are, are present. Uh, Ooh, that can be really good for city planning, actually. Yeah, I mean, one of our customers does exactly this. They, they measure and do, they call it like smart curb utilization where uh-huh. they want to basically make a curb be almost like a dynamic space where like during these amounts of time, it's zoned for this. During these amounts of times, it's zoned for this based on the flows and ebbs and flows of traffic throughout the day. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is that like, you're right. It's like a developer might be like, oh, how would I use vision? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, all these things are at my fingertips. Like I can Everything just Everything you can see. <laughs> yeah, right. I can, just, I can just add functionality for my app to understand and ingest. It. Like, and usually the way that someone gets like almost nerd sniped into this is like yes. they have like a home automation project. So yeah, it's like, send, yeah. give us a few. Yeah. yeah, so send me a text when um, a package shows up so I can like prevent package theft. So yeah. I can like go down and grab it right away. Or we had a... Uh, this one's pretty pretty niche, but it's pretty funny. There was this guy who, during the pandemic, w- wanted to make sure his cat had like the proper uh, workout. And so I've shared the story where he basically decided that he'd make a cat workout machine with computer vision. You might be wondering, <laughs> like, what does that look like? Well, what he decided was he would take a robotic arm, strap a laser pointer to it, and then train a machine to recognize his cat and his cat only and point the laser pointer consistently 10 feet away <laughs> from the cat. There's actually a video. If you, if you type into YouTube, cat laser turret, you'll find Dave's video. Uh, and hopefully Dave's cat has, has lost the weight that it needs to because that's just the, that's an intense workout, I have to say. But yeah, so like that's like a... Um, you know, these uh, home automation projects are pretty common places for people to get into. Smart bird feeders. I've seen people that like are, are logging and understanding what sort of birds are uh, in the background. There's a member of our team that was working on actually this as, as a whole company and has open sourced a lot of the data for doing bird species identification. And now there's, I think there's even a company that's uh, founded to create like a smart bird feeder that like captures photos and tells you which ones you've attracted to your yard. I met that, do you know, get around the uh, car sharing company that- I've heard uh, of them, never used them. They did a SPAC last year and they had raised at like- they're, they're a unicorn. They raised like 1.2 billion, I think, in the, in the prior round and spac at a similar price. I met the CTO of, of GetAround because he was uh, using RoboFlow to hack into his Tesla cameras to identify other vehicles that are like often nearby him. So he's basically building his own custom license plate recognition. And he just wanted to like keep like keep tabs of like when he drives by his friends or when he sees like regular sorts of folks. And so he was doing like automated license plate recognition by tapping into his uh, camera feeds. And by the way, Elliot's like one of the like OG hackers. He was, I think, one of the very first people to like um, jailbreak iPhones and, and these sorts of things. Mm. So yeah, the project that I want, uh, that I'm going to work on right now for my, my new place in San Francisco is there's two doors. There's like a gate and then the other door. And sometimes we like forget to close, close the gate. So like basically if it sees that the gate is open, it'll like send us all a text or something like this to make sure that the gate is, is closed at the front of our house. That's really cool. And I'll, I'll call out one thing that readers and listeners can uh, read out on, on your history, one of your most popular initial um, viral blog posts was about um, autonomous vehicle data sets and how uh, the one that Udacity was using was missing like one third of humans. And uh, it's not, it's pretty problematic for cars to miss humans. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually. So yeah, there's that Udacity self-driving car data set, which look to their credit, it was just meant to be used for, for academic use. 
um, and like as a part of courses on on Udacity, right? Yeah. But the the team that released it kind of hastily labeled and let it go out there to just start to use and train some models. I think that likely some some uh, maybe commercial use cases maybe may have come and, and used uh, the data set. Who's to say? But Brad and I discovered this data set, and when we were working on data set improvement tools at Roboflow, we ran it through our tools and identified some like pretty, as you mentioned, key issues. Like for example, a lot of strollers weren't labeled, and I hope our self-driving cars see those and <laughs> these sorts of things. And so we relabeled the whole data set by hand. I have this very fond memory. It was February 2020. Brad and I are in Taiwan, so like COVID is actually just just getting going. And the reason we were there is we were like, hey, we can work on this from anywhere for a little bit. And so we spent like a let's um, go closer to COVID. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I like to say we uh, we got early indicators of uh, how bad it was going to be. I bought a bunch of like N95s before going over. I remember going to the, the like buying a bunch of N95s and getting this craziest look, like this like crazy tin hat guy. Wow, what is he doing? And then here's how you knew I, I also got got by how bad it was going to be. I left all of them in Taiwan because it's like, oh, you all need these. We'll be fine over in the US. And then come to find out, of course, that Taiwan was a lot better in terms of, um, I think, yeah, safety. But anyway, we were in Taiwan. Because we'd planned this trip and, you know, at the time we weren't super sure about the uh, COVID and these sorts of things. We always canceled it. We didn't. But at this this very specific time, Brad and I were riding on the train from Huelin back to Taipei. It's like a four-hour ride. And you mentioned Pioneer earlier. We were competing in Pioneer, which is almost like a gamified to-do list. Every mm-hmm. week you say what you're going to do and then other people evaluate, did you actually do the things you said you were going to do? One of the things we said we were going to do was like this, I think, re-release of this data set. And so it's like late. We had a whole week, like, you know, weekend behind us and... Uh, we're on this train and it's a very unpleasant situation, but we relabeled this this data set in one sitting, got it submitted before like the Sunday Sunday countdown clock starts voting for for Pioneer. And um, once that data set got back out, back out there, just as you mentioned, it kind of picked up and VentureBeat um, noticed and wrote some stories about it. And we really re-released, of course, the data set that we did our best job of labeling. And now if anyone's listening, they can probably go out and like find some errors that we surely still have and maybe call us out and, you know, put us put us on blast. But um, well, well, the reason I like this story is because it, it draws attention to the idea that annotation is difficult. And basically anyone looking to use computer vision in their business who may not have an off-the-shelf data set is going to have to get involved in annotation. And I don't know what it costs. And that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for me to estimate how big a task this is, right? So my question at a higher level is, how do customers, how do you tell customers to estimate the economics of annotation? Like how many images do, do we need? How much, how long is it going to take? That, that kind of stuff, how much money? And then what are the nuances to doing it well, right? Like, because obviously Udacity had a poor quality job. You guys improved it. And there's errors everywhere. Like where do these things go wrong? The really good news about annotation in general is that like annotation, of course, is a means to an end to have a model be able to recognize a thing increasingly there's models that are coming out that can recognize things zero shot without any annotation. Which so, we're going to talk about. Yeah, which we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But in general, the good news is that like the trend is that annotation is going to become decreasingly a blocker to starting to use computer vision in meaningful ways. Now that said, just as you mentioned, there's a lot of places where you still need to do annotation. I mean, even with these zero shot models, they might have, have blind spots or maybe your business, as you mentioned that, you know, it's proprietary data. Like only Rivian knows what a Rivian is supposed to look like, right? <laughs> uh, at the time of at the, at the time of it being produced, like underneath the hood and and all these sorts of things. And so, yeah, that's going to necessarily require annotation. So, your question of how long is it going to take? How do you estimate these sorts of things? It really comes down to the complexity of the problem that you're solving and the amount of variance in the scene. So, let's give some contextual examples. If you're trying to recognize, we'll say 
a scratch on one specific part and you have very strong lighting, you might need fewer images because you control the lighting, you know the exact part, and maybe you're lucky and the scratch happens more often than not in similar parts or similar uh, portions of the given part. So in that context, you, you, the function of variance, the variance is, is, is lower. So the number of images you need is also lower to start getting up to work. Now, the orders of magnitude we're talking about is that like you can have an initial like working model from like 30 to 50 images in yeah. this context, which is shockingly low. Like I feel like this is kind of an open secret in computer vision now. The general heuristic that I'll often tell users is that like, you know, maybe 200 images per class is when you start to have a model that you can rely on Rely meaning like 90, 99, 90, 90%? Um, uh, like what's 85 plus? 85. Okay. Um, That's good. Again, these are very, very finger in the wind estimates because yeah. the variance we're talking about. But the real question is like, at what point, like the framing is not like, at what point do I get to 99, right? The framing is at what point can I use this thing to be better than the alternative? Which is humans. Which yeah. may be humans or maybe like this problem wasn't possible at all. And yeah. so usually the question isn't like, how do I get to 99, 100%? It's how do I ensure that like the value I'm able to get from putting this thing in production is greater than the alternative? In fact, even if you have a model that's less accurate than humans, there might be some circumstances where you can tolerate uh, a greater amount of inaccuracy. And if you look at the accuracy relative to the cost, using a model is extremely cheap. Using a human for the same sort of task can be very expensive. Now, in terms of the actual accuracy of, of what you get, there's probably some point at which the cost but relative accuracy exceeds of a model, exceeds the high cost and hopefully high accuracy of, of a human comparable. Like, for example, there's like cameras that will track soccer balls or track events happening during sporting matches. And you can go through and, you know, we actually have users that work in sports analytics. You can go through and have a human watch hours and hours of footage because not just watching their team they're watching every other team they're watching scouting teams they're watching junior teams they're watching competitors and you could have them like you know track and follow every single time the ball goes within blank region of the field or every time blank player goes into uh, this portion of the field and you could have you know exact like 100% accuracy if that person maybe maybe not 100 a human maybe like 95 97% accuracy of every single time the ball is in this region or this player is on the field Truthfully, maybe if you're scouting analytics, you actually don't need 97% accuracy of knowing that that player was on the field. And in fact, if you can just have a model run at a 1,000th, a 10,000th of the cost and goes through and finds all the times that Messi was present on the field, mm -hmm. that the ball was in this region of the field, then even if that model is slightly less accurate, the cost is just so orders of magnitude different and the stakes, like the stakes of this problem of knowing like the total number of minutes that Messi played, we'll say, are such that we have a higher air tolerance that it's a no-brainer to start to use yeah. a computer vision model in this context. So not every problem requires equivalent or greater human performance. Even when it does, you'd be surprised at how fast models get there. And in the times when you uh, really look at a problem, the question is, how much accuracy do I need to start to get value from this, this thing? Like the package example is a great one, right? Like I could, in theory, set up a camera that's constantly watching in front of my porch and I could watch the camera whenever I have a package and then go down. But of course, I'm not going to do that. I value my time to do other sorts of things instead. And so like there, there's this net new capability of, oh, great, I can have an always on thing that tells me when a package shows up, even if you know the, the thing that's going to text me when a package shows up, let's say a flat pack shows up instead of a box and it doesn't know what a flat pack look like, looks like initially. <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I didn't have this capability at all before. And I think that's the true case where a lot of computer vision problems exist. It's like, it, it's like, 
you didn't even have this capability, this superpower before at all, let alone assigning a given human to do the task. And that's where we see like this explosion of, of value. Awesome. Awesome. That was a really good overview. I want to leave time for the others, but I, I really want to dive into a couple more things with regards to RoboFlow. So one is apparently your original pitch for RoboFlow was with regards to conversion tools for computer vision data sets. And I'm sure as, as a result of your job, you have a lot of rants, like I'm digging for rants basically on like <laughs> the best or the worst annotation formats. What do we know? Because like most oh of us, gosh. we only know like, you know, I like, Okay, so when we talk about computer vision annotation formats, what we're talking about is if you have an image and you you picture a bounding box around my face on that image, yeah. how do you describe where that bounding box is? X, Y, Z, X, Y coordinates. Okay, X, Y coordinates, how? What do you mean? From the top left, okay. uh, you, you, you take X and Y and then, and then the, the length and, and the width of the, the box. Okay, so you get like a top left coordinate and like the bottom right coordinate or like the, the center so, of the bottom? Yeah, yeah, top left, bottom right, yeah. That's one type of format. Okay. But then um, I come along and I'm like, you know what, I want to do a different format where I want to just put the center of the box and right. give the length and width. Right. And by the way, we didn't even talk about what X and Y we're talking about. Is X a pixel count? Is it a relative pixel count? Is it an absolute pixel count? So the point is, <laughs> the number of ways to describe where a box lives in a freaking image is endless, uh, seemingly. And everyone decided to kind of create their own different ways of describing the coordinates and positions of where, in this context, a bounding box is present. Uh, so there's some formats, for example, that like use, re- so for the X and Y, like Y is, uh, like the leftmost part of the image is zero and the rightmost part of the image is one. So the the coordinate is like anywhere from zero to one. So 0.6 is, you know, 60% of your way right up the image to describe the coordinate. I guess that was, that was X instead of Y. But the point is there of the zero to one is the way that we determined where that was in the position. Or we could do an absolute pixel position. Anyway, we got sick. We got sick of all these different annotation formats. So why do you even have to convert between formats is, is another part of this, this story. So different training frameworks. Like if you're using TensorFlow, you need like TF records. If you're using PyTorch, it's probably going to be well, it depends on like what model you're using, but someone might use CocoJSON with PyTorch. Someone else might use like a, just a YAML file and a text file and to describe the coordinates. Point is, everyone that creates a model or creates a data set rather has created different ways of describing where and how a bounding box is present in the image. And we got sick of all these different formats and doing these and writing all these different converter scripts. And so we made a tool that just converts from one script, one type of format to another. And the key thing is that like, if you get that converter script wrong, your model doesn't not work. It just fails silently because the bounding boxes are now all in the wrong places. And so you need a way to visualize and be sure that your converter script, blah, blah, blah. So that was the very first tool we released of RoboFlow. It was just a converter script. You know, like these, like these PDF to word converters that you find. It was basically that for computer vision, like dead simple, really annoying thing. And we put it out there and people found some, some value in, in that. And you know, to this day, that's still like a surprisingly painful <laughs> problem. Um, yeah, so you and I met at the Dali Hackathon at OpenAI. And we were I was trying to implement this like face masking thing. And I immediately ran into that problem because, um, you know, the, the parameters that Dali expected were different from the one that I got from my face uh, facial detection <laughs> thing. One day it'll go away, but that day is not today. <laughs> uh, the worst format that we work with is, yes. is Marmat. The marmot format, it just makes no sense. <laughs> and it's like, I think, I think it's a one-off annotation format that this university in China started to use to describe where annotations exist in a book. 
Marmot. I, I don't oh, yeah. know. I yeah. don't know why. So that best is. would be TF Record or some some similar. Yeah, I think <laughs> like here's your chance to like tell everybody to use one <laughs> one standard and like let's let's. Can I just tell them to use? We have a package that does this for you. So, okay. <laughs> but I'm just gonna tell you to use the Roboflow package that converts them all uh, for you, so you don't have to think about this. I mean, Coco JSON is pretty good. It's like one of the larger industry norms, and you know it's in JSON compared to like VOC XML, which is an XML format. And Coco JSON is pretty descriptive, but you know, it has it has its own sorts of drawbacks and flaws and has random like attributes. I don't know. Um, yeah. I think the best way to handle this problem is to not have to think about it, which is what we did. We just created a uh, library that that converts and uses things uh, for us. We've double-checked the heck out of it. There's been hundreds of thousands of people that have used the library and battle-tested all these different formats to find those silent errors. So I feel pretty good about no longer having to have a favorite format and instead just rely on dot load in the format that I need. Great service to the community. <laughs> yeah. Let's go into segmentation because it's at the top of everyone's minds. But before we get into segment anything, I feel like we need a little bit of context on the state of the art prior to Sam, which seems to be YOLO. And uh, you are the leading expert as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. In computer vision, there's various task types. There's classification problems where we just like assign tags to images, like, you know, maybe safe work, not safe work sort of tagging sort of stuff. Or we have object detection, which are the bounding boxes that you see and all the formats I was mentioning and, and ranting about. There's instance segmentation, which is the polygon shapes and produces really, really good looking demos. So a lot of people like instance segmentation. This would be like counting pills when you point them out on the, on the table? Yeah. So Or um, soccer players in a field? So interestingly, um, counting you could do with bounding boxes because okay. you could just say, you know, a box around a person, well, I could count, you know, 12 players in the field. Masks are most useful and polygons are most useful if you need very precise area measurements. So you have an aerial photo of a home and you want to know, and the home's not a perfect box, <laughs> and you want to know the rough square footage of that home. Well, if you know the distance between like the drone and, and the ground and you have the precise polygon shape of the home, then you can calculate how big that home is from aerial photos. And then insurers can you know provide, say, accurate estimates. And that may be why this is useful. So polygons and, and instant segmentation are, are those types of tasks. There's a key point detection task. And key point is, you know, if you've seen those demos of like all the joints on like a hand kind of outlined, there's visual question answering tasks, visual Q&A. And that's like, you know, some of the stuff that multimodality is absolutely crushing for, you know, here's an image, tell me what food is in this image. And then you can pass that and you can make a recipe out of it. But like, um, yeah, the visual question and answering task type is where multimodality is going to have and is already having an enormous impact. So that's not a comprehensive survey of every problem type, but it's enough to, to go into why SAM is significant. So these various task types, you know, which model to use for which given circumstance, like most things is highly dependent on what you're ultimately aiming to do. Like if you need to run a model on the edge, you're going to need a smaller model because it is going to run on edge compute and process in, in, in real time. If you're going to run a model in the cloud, then of course you uh, generally have more compute at your disposal. Considerations like this. Now, uh, just to pause, yeah. do we have to explain YOLO first before we go to Sam? Or? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So, right. yeah, yeah, we should. So, object detection world. So, for a while, I talked about various different task types, and you can kind of think about them on a slide scale of like classification, then object detection, and on the right most point, you have like segmentation tasks. Object detection, the bounding boxes, is especially useful for a wide, like it's it's surprisingly versatile. Whereas like classification is kind of brittle, like you only have a tag for the whole image. Well, that doesn't, you can't count things with tags. And on the other hand, like the mask side of things, like drawing masks is painstaking. And so like labeling is just a bit more 
difficult. Plus, like the processing to produce masks requires more compute. And so usually a lot of folks kind of landed for a long time on object detection being a really happy medium of affording you with rich capabilities because you can do things like count, track, measure in some contexts with bounding boxes. You can see how many things are present. You can actually get a sense of how fast something's moving by tracking the object or bounding box across multiple frames and comparing the timestamp of where it was across those frames. So object detection is a very common task type that solves lots of things that you want to do with a given model. In object detection, there's been various model frameworks over time. So kind of really early on, there's like RCNN. Uh, then there's faster RCNN <laughs> and these sorts of family of models, which are based on like ResNet kind of architectures. And then a big thing happens, and that is single shot detectors. So faster RCNN, despite its name, is, is very slow because it takes two passes on the image. Uh, the first pass is it finds part, pixels in the image that are most interesting to uh, create a bounty box candidate out of. And then it passes that to a, a classifier that then does classification of the bounding box of interest, right? Okay. And you can, see, you can see why that would be slow because yeah. you have to do two passes. You know, kind of actually led by uh, like MobileNet was I think the first large uh, single shot detector. And as its name implies, it was meant to be run on edge devices and mobile devices. And Google released MobileNet. So it's a popular implementation that you find in TensorFlow. And what single shot detectors did is they said, hey, instead of looking at the image twice, what if we just kind of have a, a backbone that finds candidate bounding boxes and then we we set loss functions for objectness we set loss function that's a real thing we set loss functions for <laughs> objectness like how much ob- how objecty this part of the image is we set a loss function for classification and then we run the image through the model on a single pass and that saves lots of compute time and you know it's not necessarily as accurate but if you have lesser compute it can be extremely useful and then the advances in both modeling techniques and compute and data quality, single shot detectors, SSDs has become uh, really, really popular. And so one of the biggest SSDs that has become really popular is the YOLO family models, as you described. And so YOLO stands for you only look once. Of course, uh, Drake's uh, other album. Um, (laughs) So Joseph Redman introduces YOLO at the University of Washington. And Joseph Redman is uh, kind of a a fun guy. So for listeners for an Easter egg, I'm going to tell you to Google Joseph Redman resume and you'll find you'll find my little pony. That's all I'll say. <laughs> and so he introduces the very first YOLO architecture, which is a single shot detector. And he also does it in a framework called Darknet, which is like this, this own framework that compiles to C's. Frankly, kind of tough to work with, but allows you to benefit from the speed ups that advance when you operate in a low level language like C. And then he releases well, what colloquially was known as YOLO v2, but the paper is called YOLO 9000 because Joseph Redmond thought it'd be funny to have something over 9000. So you get a sense for yeah, it. Yeah, some fun. And then he releases uh, YOLO v3. And YOLO v3 is kind of like where things really start to click because it goes from being an SSD that's very limited to competitive and, and, and superior to actually MobileNet and some of these other single shot detectors, which is awesome because you have this sort of solo, I mean, him and, and his advisor, Ali at University of Washington, have these uh, models that are becoming really, really powerful and capable and competitive with these large research organizations. Joseph Edmund leaves computer vision research, but there had been Alexi AB, one of the maintainers of Darknet, released YOLO v4, and another uh, researcher, Glenn Jocker, uh, Jocker, had been working on YOLO v3, but in a PyTorch implementation, because remember, YOLO is in a darknet implementation. And so then, you know, YOLO v3, and then Glenn continues to make additional improvements to YOLO v3. And 
pretty soon his improvements on Yolo V3 are he's like, oh, this is kind of its own thing. So then he releases Yolo V5. With some naming controversy that we don't have Big to get into. Big naming controversy. Yeah, yeah. The, the two I didn't read on the naming controversy is because Glenn was not originally involved with Darknet, how is he allowed to use the YOLO moniker? <laughs> Robofo got in a lot of trouble because we wrote a bunch of content about YOLO V5 <laughs> and people were like, oh, why are you naming it that? We're like, we're not. Um, but, you know. Cool. But anyway, so state-of-the-art goes to V8 is yeah, so, what I gather? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. To, yeah you're, you're just like, okay, I got V5. I'll skip to the end. Uh, unless, unless there's something, I mean, I don't want. Uh, well, so, I mean, there's some interesting things um, in the YOLO. There's like there's been, like a bunch of YOLO variants. So YOLO has okay. become this, like, this, this catch-all for various shot. yeah for a very single shot basically like runs on the edge it's quick detection framework and so there's um like yolo r there's yolo s which is a transformer based uh yolo yeah or like you only look at one sequence is what that stands for um the pp yolo which uh is paddle paddle implementation which is by which chinese google is is their implementation of of tensorflow if you will so basically yolo has a, like all these variants and now i'm um, yolo v8 which is glenn has been working on is now i think kind of like uh, one of the choice models to use for single shot detection. Well, I think a lot of those models, you know, again, asking the first principles question, like, let's say you want to find like a bus detector. Do you need to like go find a bunch of photos of buses or maybe like a chair detector? Do you need to go find a bunch of photos of chairs? It's like, oh no, you know, actually those images are present not only in the Coco data set, but those are objects that exist like kind of broadly on the internet. And so computer vision's kind of been like, us included have been like really pushing for and encouraging models that already possess a lot of context about the world. And so, you know, if GPT's idea and Ilya's idea, OpenAI was, okay, models can only understand things that are in their corpus. What if we just make their corpus the size of everything on the internet? The same thing that happened in imagery is what's happening now. And that's kind of what SAM represents, which is kind of a new evolution of, earlier on, we were talking about the cost of annotation. And I said, well, good news is annotations then become decreasingly necessary to start to get to value. Now, you got to think about it more kind of like, you'll probably need to do some annotation because you might want to find a custom object or SAM might not be perfect. But what's about to happen is a big opportunity where you want the benefits of a YOLO, right? Where it can run really fast, it can run on the edge, it's very cheap. But you want the knowledge of a large foundation model that already knows everything about buses, knows everything about shoes, knows everything about real, if the name is true, anything, segment anything model. <laughs> and so there's going to be this novel opportunity to take what these large models know, and I guess it's kind of like a form of distilling, like distill them down into smaller architectures that you can use in versatile ways to run in real time, to run on the edge. And that's now happening. And what we're seeing and actually kind of like pulling that that future forward with 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 RoboFlow. So we could talk a bit about um, about SAM and what it represents, maybe in, t- in relation to like these, these YOLO models. So SAM is Facebook segment everything model. It came out last week, um, the first week of April. It has 24,000 GitHub stars at the time of, of this recording within its first week. And why? What does it do? Segment everything is a zero-shot segmentation model. And as we we're describing, creating masks is a very arduous task. Creating masks of objects that are not already represented means you have to go label a bunch of masks and then train a model and then hope that it finds those masks in new images. And the promise of segment anything is that, in fact, you just pass it any image and it finds all of the masks of relevant things that you might be curious about finding in a given image. And it works remarkably well. Segment anything, and credit to Facebook and the FAIR Facebook research team, they not only released the model permissive license to move things forward, they released the full data set, all 11 million images and 1.1 billion segmentation masks and three model sizes. The largest one's like 
2.5 gigabytes, which is not enormous. Medium one's like 1.2 and the smallest one is like 400, uh, 375 megabytes. And for context, for, for people listening, that's six times more than the previous alternative, which is apparently open images uh, in terms of number of images and then 400 times more mass than open images as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So huge, huge order of magnitude gain in terms of data set accessibility, plus like the model and how it works. And so the question becomes, okay, so like segment anything, what what do I do with this? <laughs> I, like, what does it allow me to do? And, Put it in RoboFlow. <laughs> well, yeah. You, yeah. Uh, it's already there. You, uh, that part's done. Uh, but the thing that you can do with segment anything is you can almost like, I always think about like this, or like kind of like this model arbitrage where you can basically like distill down a giant model. So let's say like, like, let's return to the package example. Okay. The package problem of, I want to get a text when a package appears on my front porch. Before segment anything, the way that I would go solve this problem is I would go collect some images of packages on my porch and I would label them uh, with bounding boxes or maybe masks. And that part, as you mentioned, it can be a long process. And I would train a model and that model would actually probably work pretty well because it's purpose built for the camera position, my porch, the packages I'm receiving. But that's going to take some time. Like everything that I just mentioned there is going to take some time. Now with segment anything, what you can do is go take some photos of your porch. So we're, we're, still, we're still getting that. And then we're asking segment anything, basically. Do you see, like, segment everything you see here. And, you know, a limitation of segment anything right now is it gives you masks without labels, like text labels for those masks. So we can talk about the way to address that in a, in a moment. But the point is, it will find the package in, in your photo. And again, there might be some positions where it doesn't find the package or sometimes th- things look a little bit differently and you're going to have to like fine tune or whatever. But okay, now you've got, a, you've got the intelligence of a package finder. Now you want to deploy that package finder. Well, you could either call the Segment Everything model API, which hosted on platforms like RoboFlow and I'm sure other places as well. Or you could probably distill it down to a smaller model you can run on the edge. Like you want to run it maybe on like a Raspberry Pi that just is looking... And finding, well, you can't run segment everything on a Raspberry Pi, but you can run a single shot detector. So you just take all the data that's been basically automatically labeled for you, and then you distill it down and train a much, much more efficient, smaller model. And then you deploy that model to the edge. And this is sort of what's going to be increasingly possible. By the way, this has already happened in, in LLMs, right? Like, for example, like GPT 4 knows a lot about a lot, and people will distill it down in, in some ways by seeing all the, uh, like code completion, we'll say. Let's say you're building a code completion model. GPT-4 can do any type of completion in addition to code completion. If you want to build your own code completion model, because that's the only task that you're worried about for the feature you're building, you could RHLF on all of GPT-4's code completion examples and then almost kind of use that as distilling down into your own version of a code completion model and almost uh, have a cheaper more readily available, simpler model that, yes, it only does one task, but that's the only task you need. And it's a model that you own. And it's a model that you can deploy more lightly and get more value from. That's sort of what has been represented as possible with with Segment Anything. But that's just on the data set prep side, right? Like Segment Anything means you can make your own background removal. You can make your own sort of video editing software. You can make like any, this promise of trying to make the world be understood and uh, viewable and programmable just got so much more accessible. That's an incredible overview. 
I think we should just get your takes on a couple of like. So this is a massive, massive release. There are a lot of sort of small little features that uh, they they spent and elaborated in the blog post and the paper. So I'm going to pull out a few things to discuss, and obviously feel free to suggest anything that you really want to get off your chest. So zero shot transfer is that new? No. Okay. But uh, this level of quality, yes, much better. Yeah. So you could rely on large models previously for doing zero shot. Uh, detection but as you mentioned the scale and size of the data set and resulting model that was trained is is so much superior and that's i guess the benefit of having world world knowledge um and being able to rely on that okay and then promptable model this is new i still don't really understand how they did it okay so (laughs) sam basically said why don't we take these 11 million images 1.1 billion masks and we'll train a transformer and an image encoder on all of those images. And that's basically the pre-training that we'll use for passing any candidate image through. We'll pass that through this image encoder. So that's the um, backbone, if you will, of the model. Then the much lighter parts become, okay, so if I've got that image encoding, I need to interact and understand what's inside the image encoding. And that's where the prompting comes into play. And that's where the the mask decoder comes into play in, in the model architecture. So image comes in, it goes through the image encoder. The image encoder is what took lots of time and resources to train and get the weights for of, of what is SAM. But at inference time, of course, you don't have to re- refine those weights. So image comes in, goes to the image encoder. Then you have the image embedding. And now to interact with that image embedding, that's where you're going to be doing prompting and the decoding. Specifically, what comes out of, out of SAM at the image encoding step is a bunch of candidate masks. And those candidate masks are the ones that you say you want to interact with. What's really cool is there's both prompts for saying like the thing that you're interested in, but then there's also, you can also say the way that you want to pass a candidate for which mask you're interested in from Sam is you can just like point and click and say, this is the part of the image I'm interested in, which is exactly what like a a labeling interface would be uh, useful for as an example. Which they actually use to bootstrap their own annotation, it seems. Exactly. Isn't that exactly. pretty cool? Yes, exactly. So this is this is why I was mentioning earlier that like the way to solve a computer vision problem, you know, like waterfall development versus agile development. Sure. The same thing like in machine learning, uh, it, took a, it took a little bit, but folks are like, oh, we can do this in, in machine learning too. And the way you do it in machine learning is instead of saying, okay, waterfall, I'm going to take all my images and label them all. Okay, I'm done with the labeling part. Now I'm going to go to the training part. Okay, I'm done with that part. Now I'm going to go to the deployment part. A much more agile look would be like, okay, if I have like 10,000 images, let's label the first like 100 and just see what we get. And we'll train a model. And now we're going to use that model that we trained to help us label the next thousand images. And then we're going to do this on repeat. That's exactly yeah. what the SAM team did. Yeah. They first did assisted, man- they call it assisted manual. manual. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which is uh, 4.3 million mass from 120,000 images. Exactly. And then semi-automatic. Which is 5.9 million mass and 180,000 images. And in that step, they were basically having the human annotators point out where Sam may have missed a mask. And then they did fully auto. Which is the whole thing. 11 yes. million images and 1.1 billion masks. And that's where they said, Sam, do your thing and predict we all won't the even, masks. We won't even judge. Yeah. We'll just, just close our eyes. Which is what people are suspecting is happening for training GPT-5, right? Is that we're creating a bunch of candidate task text from GPT-4 to use in training the, the next GPT-5. So, but by the way, that process, like you don't have to be a Facebook to take advantage of that. Like that's exactly what like People building with RoboFlow. That's what you do. Exactly. Yeah, this is your, your tool. This is the onboarding that I did. That's exactly it. Is that like, okay, like you've got a bunch of images, but just label a few of them first. Now you've got a, I almost think about it like a, 
you know, co-pilot is the term now, but I was, I used to describe it as like a, an army of interns, otherwise known as AI that works alongside you to have a first guess at labeling images for you. And then you're just kind of like supervising and improving and doing better. And that relationship is a lot more efficient, a lot more effective. And by the way, by doing it this way, you don't waste a bunch of time labeling images. Like again, we label images in pursuit of making sure our model learns something. We don't label images to learn to label images, which means if we can label the right images defined by which images most help our model learn things next, we should. So we should look and see where is our model most likely to fail and then spend our time labeling those images. And that's that's sort of the tooling that, that we work on making that exact loop faster and easier. Yeah, I highly recommend everyone try it. It takes a few minutes. It's it's great. It's great. Is there anything else in, in Sam that Sam specifically that you want to go over or do you want to go to Roboflow plus Sam? I mentioned one key thing about Sam that it doesn't do. And that is it doesn't out of the box give you labels yeah. for your masks. Now, the paper alludes to the researchers attempting to get that part figured out. And I think that they will. I think that they were like, we're just going to publish this first part of just doing all the masks because that alone is like incredibly <laughs> transformative for what's possible in, in computer vision. But in the interim, what is happening is people stitching together different models to name those masks, right? So imagine that you go to Sam and you say, here's an image. And then Sam makes perfect masks of everything in the image. Now you need to know what are these masks? What objects are in these masks? Isn't it funny that Sam doesn't know? Because you, you just said it knows everything. Yeah, it knows. It's weird. It knows all the candidate masks. And that's that's because that was the function that it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay. But again, like this is this is what's going, like this is exactly what multimodality is going to have happen. Anyway, you solved it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so there's a couple of different solutions. I mean, this is where it's, um, you're begging the question of like, what are you trying to do with SAM? Like if you want to do SAM and you want to distill it down to deploy a more purpose-built, task-specific, faster, cheaper model that you own, yeah. that's commonly, I think, what's going to happen. So in that context, you're using SAM to accelerate your labeling. Another way you might want to use SAM is just in prod, out of the box. Like SAM is going to produce good candidate labels and I don't need to fine-tune anything. And I just want to like use that as is. Well, in both of these contexts, we need to know the names of the masks that Sam is finding, right? Because like if we're using Sam to label our stuff, well, telling us the mask isn't so helpful. Like <laughs> in my image of packages, it's like, did you label the door? Or did you label the package? I, I need to know what this mask is. There's an objectsness there that, is, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that we can tell. Yeah. And so you can use Sam in combination with other models. And pretty soon this is going to be a single model. Like this podcast is going to gonna, like... I'll make a bold prediction in 30 days. Like Someone will do it. Someone will do it in a single model. But with two models, so there's a model, for example, called Grounding Dino, mm-hmm. which is zero-shot bounding box prediction mm-hmm. and with labels. And you interact with Grounding Dino through text prompts. So you could say, like, here's an image. You know, you and I are seated here in the studio. There's cans in front of us. You could say, give me the left can. And yeah. it would label bounding box only around the can on the left. Like, it understands text in that way. So you could use the masks from Sam and then ask Grounding Dino, what are these things? Or where is X? And between the combination of those two things, boom, you have an automatic working text description of the things that you have in mind. Now, again, this is imperfect. Like there will be places that still require human in the loop review. And especially like on the novelty of a data set, these things will be, be dependent. But the point is, yes, there's places to improve. And yes, you're going to need to use tooling to do those improvements. The point is like, we're starting so far ahead in our process. We're no longer starting at just like, I've got some images, what do I do? We're starting at, I've got some images and candidate descriptions of what's in those images. How do I now mesh these two things together 
to understand precisely what I want to know from these images and then deploy this thing because that's where you ultimately capture the value is deploying this thing. And, and in Vision, a lot of that means on the edge because you have things running out in fields where people aren't um, and that usually means constrained compute. Part of the demo of Segment Anything runs in the browser as well, which is interesting to some people. I, I'm not sure how what percent of it was done. That's what's fascinating. Um, because, And the reason it can do that, right, is because, again, the giant image encoder, so remember the steps. Yeah. It takes an image, the image encoder, and then you prompt from that image encoder. The image encoder is a large model, and mm-hmm. you need a spun-up GPU to run the ongoing encoding. That yeah. requires meaningful compute. Yeah. But the prompting can run in the browser. It's that lightweight, which means you can provide really fast feedback. And that's exactly what we did at RoboFlow is we took Sam and we made it be the world's best labeling tool. Like you can click on anything and Sam immediately says, this is what you wanted. The thing that you wanted to label is in these this pixel coordinates area. And to be clear, we already had like this, like kind of, we call it smart poly, like this thing that like you could click and it would make regions of, of guesses of interest. Sam is just such a stepwise improvement that will show, I mean, things that used to yeah. take maybe five or six clicks, you can, Sam immediately understands. In one click. In one click. Cool. I, I think we might switch over to the uh, demo. But yeah, I think this is the, the time that we switch to a multimodal podcast and uh, have our first screen share. Amazing. So I'll semi narrate what's, uh, what's going on, but uh, we are checking out Joseph's screen and this is the interface of RoboFlow. We have, we have RoboFlow before Sam and we have RoboFlow post Sam and we're going to see what uh, the quality difference is. Okay, so here is uh, an image where we have a given weld that we're interested in segmenting this portion of the weld where these two pipes come together. Yeah, and the weld is highly irregular. It's kind of like curved in, in both in three dimensions. So it's just not a typical, easily segmentable thing. Yeah, to the human eye, like Spix or I could figure out, you know, probably where this weld starts and stops. But that's going to take a lot of clicks, certainly. Like we could go through and like we could, you know, this would be like the really old-fashioned way of like creating. Apparently, this is how they did uh, lightsabers. They, you had to like mask out lightsabers, oh. and then you, then you used to sub in on the, the lights. And you did it for every frame, so it's just really super expensive because they didn't have any other options. Wow! And now it's one click in runway. Wow. Okay. So open call for someone to make a lightsaber simulator using <laughs> RoboFlow. That's awesome. You so, haven't had one? Not of which I'm aware. Okay. Oh my God. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we, so that's, that's the very old fashioned way. Now inside RoboFlow, like uh, before Sam, we did have this thing called Smart Poly uh, and this will still be, still be available for, for users to use. And so if like I'm, I'm labeling the weld area, I'd go like this and you know, the first click, I'll, I'll narrate a little bit for, for Swix. I clicked on the welded joint and it got the welded joint, but it also includes lots of irrelevant The rest area. of the, the bottom pipe and then and the pipes on the right. What is that picking up? Is it picking up on like just the color or is it like... Yeah, this specific model probably wasn't pre-trained on images of welds and pipes. And so it just doesn't have a great concept yeah. of what regions start and stop. Now, to be clear, I'm not SOL here. Like part of part of the thing with RoboFlow is I can go say, I can add positive and negative points. So I can say, no, uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't want this part. Yeah. And so I said, I don't want that bottom part of the pipe. A little better. And I still don't want the bottom part of the pipe. Okay, oh, that's almost wow. almost there. There's a lot of space on either side okay. of the weld. Okay, all right, that's better. So so four clicks, we got we got our way to to you know the the weld here. Um, now with Sam, and so we're gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna label the weld portion with a single click. It understands <laughs> the context of of that 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 weld. Uh, I was labeling fish, so I thought I was working on fish. So that's like one. Okay, that's that's great of like a, a before and after, but. 
let's talk about maybe some of the other examples of things that I might want to work on. I came with some fun examples. Let's do, um, so I've got this image of two kids playing. One of them's holding a balloon. In the background, there's like a brick wall. The lighting's not great. Yeah. Lighting's not fantastic, but um, you know we can clearly make out what's going on. So I'm going to click the uh, the brick wall in the background. Sam immediately labels both sides of the brick wall, even though there is a pole separating view between the left portion of the brick wall and the right portion of the brick wall. So I can just say like, I don't know, I'll just say thing for ease. Or let's say I want to do this guy's shoe. And I'm like, actually, no, I, no, I don't want the shoe. I want the whole uh, person. So I can... That's two clicks. Two clicks. And Sam immediately got it. Maybe I want to be even more really precise and get that portion there. And miss his face a little bit. So we click the face. And that's another thing. Or let's jump to maybe... This one's very fun. Okay. So there's a, blue, a chihuahua with a bunch of balloons. Yeah. So here, let's say like I wanted to do... Uh, maybe I just want to do like the eyes, right? Uh-huh. So I'll click like the left eye. That makes the whole chihuahua light up. So it gets the whole chihuahua. Now, here's where interactivity with models and kind of like a new UX paradigm for interaction with models makes some sense. So I'm going to say, okay, I want that left eye. I don't want the like the rest, the rest of, the, of dog. the dog. So I'm going to say no on this part of the dog. And then I'm going to go say go yes. To the eye. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to say yes on the other eye. Uh-huh. Boom. All right. Now you got both eyes. I got both eyes and nothing else. And I could do the same thing with the ear. So I could say like, I want the ear, and I click the right ear, and it gets the whole, again, the whole dog head. But I could say, no, I don't want the dog head. And it, boom, <laughs> recognizes that I want only the right ear. So can I ask about, so obviously this is super impressive. Can I ask, like, is there a way to generalize this work? Like, I did this work for one image. Can I take another image of a, the same chihuahua and just say, do that? The um, Reapply what I did? To some degree. There's a few ways we could do that. The Probably the simplest way is actually going back to what we were talking about where you label a few examples and then you create your own kind of mini model that understands exactly what you're after. <laughs> yeah. And then you have that mini model finish the work for you. And you just do that within RoboFlow? You just do that within RoboFlow. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So like I've got like, so I label, I label a bunch of my images after I've got, you know, we'll say like 10 of them labeled, then I'll kick off, you know, my own custom model. And the nice thing is that like, right, I'm building my own IP. And that's one of the big things that like, I'm pretty excited about with uh, multimodality and especially with GBT and some of these things is that like, I can take what these large, massive models understand. This is a generous way of saying distill, but I can distill them down into a different architecture that captures that portion of the world and use that model for, let's say in this context, I've got an image up of uh, men kind of in front of a pier and they've got aprons on. I can build my own apron detector. Again, this is sort of like, in some contexts, like, if I want to build a task-specific model and, and Sam knows everything that it knows, I can either go the route of trying to use Sam zero shot plus another model to label the, the, the mask images. That might be limiting because of just the compute intensity that Sam requires to run. And you know, maybe I want to build some of my own IP and make use of some of my own data. But these are kind of the two routes that I think we'll see continue to evolve. And I can use text prompting with Grounding Dino plus Sam to get a sense of which portions of the image I care about. And then I'm probably going to need to do a little bit of QA of, of that. But the like the data set prep process and the biggest inhibitor to creating your own value and IP just got so much simpler. <laughs> and I think that um I think we're the first ones to go live with this. So that's yeah. I'm I'm very thrilled yeah, about we're that. We're recording this earlier, but it's uh when when this podcast drops it will be live. Uh, hopefully, you yeah. know, if everything goes well, <laughs> I'll coordinate with you. So, so, so it will be live. No, it will. It, it will, will be live. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and people can go try it out. 
Exactly. I guess it will just be part of the Roboflow platform. And I, I assume I'll, I'll add a, a blog post to it. Anything else on... Uh, so we're, we're about to zoom out from Sam and computer vision to use your general AI takes, but uh, anything else in terms of like future projections of, of the, of what happens next in, in computer vision segmentation or anything in, in that, in that field. As you're describing earlier, Sam right now only produces masks. It can't be textier to give the context of those masks. That's going to happen in a single architecture without chaining together a couple of different architectures. That's, that's for sure. The second thing is, um, multimodality generally will allow us to add more context to the things that we're seeing and doing. And I'm sure we'll probably talk about this in a moment, but like that's maybe a good segue into like GPT-4 and GPT-4's capabilities, what we expect, how we're excited about it, the ways that we're already using some of GPT-4 and really going to lean into the capabilities it unlocks from from imagery and and a visual prep perspective. Let's go into that. Uh, I was watching that keynote on GPT-4. I was blown away. What were your reactions as a computer vision company? Similar. (laughs) Similar, yeah. Apparently, uh, so Greg Brockman did that demo where he said, make a joke generator website. Apparently that was totally ad hoc. Like they didn't practice that at all. Yeah, he just gave it a go. Yeah, I I think that like the generation of code from imagery, I think that like screenshot of a website to React components within six months. I think stuff like that will be imminently possible, doable, and just unlock all kinds of potential. And then did you see the second one with the Discord screenshot? that they posted in. It was a very quick part of the demo, so a lot of people missed it. But essentially, what Logan from OpenAI did was screenshotted uh, the Discord screen he was on and then pasted it into the Discord that had GPT-4 read it. And it was able to read every word on it. Yes. I think OCR is a solved problem. In a large language model, as opposed to like a dedicated OCR model. Yes. Isn't that... that that's, we've never seen that. That's right. It's... <laughs> Yeah, and I think OCR like is actually a perfect candidate for like multimodality, right? Cuz it's literally photos of text. Yeah, yeah. And there's already going to be like ample training data from all the work that's been done on creating prior OCR models. All right. But yeah, I think that they probably are about to release the world's best OCR model full stop. Yeah. Well, so I think those are like kind of what they wanted to show on the demo. I you know, it's it's news to me that the the drawing was impromptu. What's a really hard challenge that you want to try on GPT four once you get access to it? What are you gonna run it on? So the way I think about like advances in computer vision and what uh, capabilities get unlocked, where there's still gonna be problems and ensuring that we're building tooling that really unblocks people. I think that like if you think about the types of use cases that a model already knows without any training, I think about like a bell curve distribution. Where in the fat center of the curve, you have uh, what historically has been like the Cocoa data set, common objects in context, a 2014 release from Microsoft, 80 classes, things like chair, silverware, food, car. They say sports ball for all sports. sports. (laughs) Did they really? Yeah. In in the data set? Yeah. That's that's hilarious. Oh my God. So, yeah. And so you've got like all these, I mean, I I get why they did that. It's like a capture for all sports. but the point is that like in the fat center, you have these things, these, these objects that are as common as possible. And I think that, and then go to the exact like long tails of this distribution. In the very, very like edge of the tails, you have data and problems that are not common or regularly seen. The prevalence of that image maybe existing on the web is maybe one way to think about this. And that's where you have like maybe a manufacturer that makes their own good that no one else makes or a logistics company that knows what their stuff is supposed to look like. Or maybe your specific house looks like a very notable way or a pattern or, or something like this. And of course, the, all these problems depend on like what exactly you want to do, but there will be places where there's just proprietary 
information that doesn't exist on the web, basically. And um, I think of that, like what's happening in Vision is that fat middle is steadily expanding outward. The models that are trained on Coco, you know, do better and better and better on like making that middle sliver really, really confident. And then models like Clip, which, you know, two years ago, the first kind of multimodality approach, which RoboFlow is already powered, like we already have Clip powered search in RoboFlow and have for over a year, which, you know, links text and images in a way we haven't seen before it. And that basically increases the generalizability of what models can see. I think GPT-4 expands that even further where like you get like even further into like those, those long, long tails. I don't think that like completely, like I don't think that like we'll like never train again, so to speak. That's kind of like my, my mental model of what's happening, what's going to continue to happen. Now that still creates emergent problems for developers. That still creates problems like, like we were talking about earlier, even if, you know, I have a model that knows everything in the world, that model might be A, not mine, or it might be a model that I can't run where I need to run it. Uh, maybe a place without internet, maybe a place on the edge, maybe a place that's compute constrained. So I might need to do like some distilling down. I might have data that's truly proprietary that's like not present on the web. So like I can't rely on this model. I might have a task type that these GBD4 and multimodal models are extremely good at visual question answering. And I think they'll be able to describe images in kind of like a free form text way, but you're still going to kind of maybe need to massage that text into something useful and and insightful and and to be to be understood and maybe that's a place where you're like you know use like Langchain and things to like uh, figure out what's going on from from the candidate's descriptions of of text and so there's still going to be a healthy set of problems to making this stuff be be usable but ways that we're thinking about at RoboFlow that I'm very excited about so we already use GPT four to do like data set description with to be clear just the text only just AI. the text only yeah. just the text only we're we're fortunate that like Greg and and Sam back us. Um, uh, but personally, I, personally, Sam, as in Altman, Sam, not the yeah, yeah, not the model, right, Sam, because right. the, mo- the model could be smart enough to back you. I don't know. <laughs> that's been a funny confusion this last uh, week. You know. like, which, which Sam? Which Sam are you talking about? You were talking a lot about Sam, just. so but but we don't have um, visual access to be clear. The text only GPT four to do data set description, basically passing it what we already know. Like we have, hey, I have a computer vision model with like these sorts of classes or things like this, and give me a data set description that enriches enriches my data set. And then we also, of course, have like GPT-4 powered support, like a lot of folks do. Of like, uh, we ingested uh, the 480 blogs and the Ripple blog, the 120 YouTube videos, 480, the you guys, the uh, dozens of open source projects, and every page in our docs uh, and our help center. And then we ingested that, and now we have a GPT-4 powered bot that can generate not only like code snippets, just like GPT-4 can do really well, but regurgitate and cite and point you to the resources oh, across RoboFlow. Sh- shout out to the OG uh, RoboFlow fans. You are the first to have your own bot, which is Ask RoboFlow. And I saw this at Hacker News. I was like, wait, this is a harbinger of things to come. And uh, In yeah. 2019, <laughs> this is where the name RoboFlow comes from. Really? We, we yes. I was we, thinking there's nothing imaging in your in your uh, description or your name. Yeah, because yeah, I mean I think that um, <laughs> to build to build a hundred years endurable company, you can't just be one thing. You got to you got to do everything. Uh, you got to be Microsoft anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the first things we were doing with um, AI in 2019 was we realized Stack Overflow is an extremely valuable resource, but it's only in English, and programmers come from all around the world. So logically, programmers are going to be speaking various languages to want to understand and debug their programs. So we said, with these advances in NLP, don't you think that we could translate Stack Overflow to every single other language and provide a really useful localized Stack Overflow? And so we started working on that. And we called it Stack Roboflow. And then um, Josh, the founder of uh, 
Delicious, if you remember that that mm-hmm. site. Mm-hmm. He Sean Parkered us. He's like, drop drop the stack. It's cleaner. Just, <laughs> just make it be Roboflow. It's a great story. Uh, oh, I love the story behind names. And from from then on, it's just been uh, Roboflow. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is you know been a useful name and it's and it's stuck. But yeah, like we, I mean, actually, stackroboflow is still up and you can like ask it questions. It's not nearly as good, of course. It's like <laughs> it's, it's before LLMs, like it's, uh, but uh, yeah, ask Roboflow was the very first, you know, programmer completion sort of, sort of guide. So we've been really excited that um, others have picked up and done a much better job with that than what we were doing. Yeah. You have a really sort of hacker mentality, which I love. I always see you at, at the various hack- hackathons in San Francisco. Uh, and maybe we can close out with that. I, I know we've been running long, so uh, I'm just going to zoom out a little bit into the broader sort of personal or meta question about how do you keep up with AI, right? Like you, you're an econ grad, you went into data science, very common path. I, I had a similar path as well. And I'm going down this AI journey um, about six, seven years after you. How do you recommend people keep up? The way that I do is ingest sources from probably similar places that others do of whether it's the research community is quite active on on Twitter, regularly seen papers linked on, on archive. People will be in communities, various discords, or even inside the RoboFlow Slack. People will share papers and things that are um, meaningful and interesting. But that's just like one part is like ingestion, yes. getting ingestion from friends, having like engaged in conversations and just kind of being eyes wide open to various things. The second part is production. Yeah. Anyone can kind of like read some tweets and see some demos, but for me, when RoboFlow, when Brad and I uh, were just working on stuff very early, one of the pioneer goals that we had was publish three blogs and two YouTube videos per week. And we did that for seven months. So I was just nonstop producing content. And that wasn't just like writing a blog. It'd usually be like, um, you know, you, you do a blog sometimes or you do like a, a collab notebook training tutorial. Or the point is you're basically like naturally re-implementing the papers and things that you're reading and as you're out of ideas anyway (laughs) (laughs) gotta do something (laughs) i mean as you mentioned i spent some time teaching data science work yeah journal assembly and actually taught a bit about gw and i really became a subscriber to the belief that if you can't describe something simply then you probably don't don't know it yourself and so being forced to to produce things and then yeah you mentioned like hackathons like i still still have a good hackathon whether that's internal to our team or inside the outside in the community and I really look up to folks like, I mean, I'm sure you've probably come across like, uh, you, you recently mentioned that you, you'd spent some time with like the Notion founders and, you know, they're insanely yeah. curious and you would have no idea of the stature of of the business. And I think that that's like an incredibly strong ethos to, to have. They're billionaires and they're having lunch with me to, to ask <laughs> well, what well, I think of yeah. AI. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I mean, I think you have an incredibly good view of, of, <laughs> of what's next and what's coming up and uh, a different purview. But that's exactly what I mean, right? Like, engaging other folks and legitimately asking them and wanting to glean and, and be curious. Like, I don't know, like I think about someone like Jeff Dean who made MapReduce and also introduced one of the first versions of TensorFlow. Like yeah. he just has to be so innately curious to, I don't even know if it's, it's, if it's called reinventing yourselves at that, by that time, if you've just like been uh, so on the, the cutting edge, but it's not like, I think about like someone considering themselves quote unquote an expert in like TensorFlow or a framework or whatever. And it's like, everyone is learning. Some people are just like, further ahead on their journey and you could actually catch up pretty quickly with some strong some strong effort so i think that that's a lot of it is like being is there's just as much the mentality as there is like the the resources and then like the the production and i mean you kind of mentioned before we started recording like oh you're like the expert on these these sorts of things and i don't even think that that's uh i spend more time thinking about them than a lot of people but there's still a ton to ingest and work on and change and improve and I think that that's actually a pretty big opportunity for uh, young companies, especially that have a, a habit of being able to move quickly and really focus on like unlocking user value rather than 
most other things. Well, that's a perfect way to end things. Uh, thank you for being my and many other people's first introduction to computer vision and the state of the art. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back for you know whatever else comes uh, along. But you were literally the perfect guest to talk about segment anything, and it was by far the hottest this topic of discussion this past week. So thanks for uh, taking the time. I had a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. <laughs> 